the Old Roads podcast, a podcast that seeks to bring the wisdom of the past to the challenges of the present. I'm your host, Aaron O'Kelly. I'm a pastor and a theological educator. The question I want to address today as we continue to reflect on the question of the doctrine of humanity is this one. When does human life begin? That is such a pressing question today because of the background of abortion in our nation's history. In 1973, the Supreme Court handed down the Roe v. Wade decision that argued that a state cannot restrict abortion in the first trimester. There may be some restrictions imposed by the states in the second and third trimesters, but there are exceptions for those restrictions in the case that are needed to preserve the health of the mother. That was then paired with the Doe versus Bolton decision at the same time that defined the health of a mother so broadly that virtually any conceivable situation could impact the health of a mother, warranting an exception to abortion restrictions. All that is to say that as a result of the Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton decisions in 1973, the United States ended up with a very permissive approach to abortion. The Supreme Court did not allow states to regulate it much at all. In 1992, there were some modifications made to that decision in the Planned Parenthood versus Casey Supreme Court decision, but the basic framework of Roe v. Wade was upheld in 1992. Now, since Casey, the new standard is viability outside the womb rather than the trimester divisions. And so states could not regulate abortion prior to the point of viability. That is, when could the infant survive outside the womb? And there could be restrictions after the point of viability. But again, the health of the mother is always the trump card that can be played. If it's defined so broadly as to include even emotional or economic factors, then a woman could get an exception to this for virtually any reason. And so even through the Planned Parenthood versus Casey decision in 92, we continue to have a very liberal approach to abortion in the United States. Some 60 million unborn children were aborted from 1973 until 2022, when the Supreme Court handed down the Dobbs versus Jackson decision that overturned Roe versus Wade. That was a momentous occasion in American history, and I think we will look back on it in decades and generations to come as a seminal moment in the life of our nation, a moment where there was genuine movement toward righteousness. Now, there's still a lot of work to do. The overturning of the Roe v. Wade decision simply returned this matter to the states. The federal government no longer has authority to tell states what they can and cannot do on the question of abortion, according to the Supreme Court, since 2000. 22. Now every state must decide its own policy. Sadly, since the Dobbs decision in 2022, ballot initiatives in several states, every time it's come to the ballot, the pro-choice side has won a ballot initiative, even in what we would think of as relatively conservative states like Kansas or Ohio. The pro-choice side continues to win at the ballot box. And so we still have a lot of work to do as this fight goes on state by state. I think what we're seeing now in the aftermath of the fall of Roe versus Wade is that Americans generally don't want late-term abortions to happen. Most Americans want there to be restrictions when it comes to late-term abortions, but they also don't want restrictions on sexual freedom. And so there seems to be a strong push among the American electorate, even in relatively conservative states, to maintain some freedom 
for early abortions so that sexual freedom can be maintained and so that women who are pregnant and don't intend to be at least have this option to end their pregnancies. The key ethical question that needs to be discussed, it has been discussed, but it needs to come back to the forefront of our discussion is this one. When does human life begin? Because if we can answer that question, and if we have anything resembling an ethical compass, we could come to realize, we should come to realize that sexual freedom needs to take a back seat to the protection of human life. So I want to ask the question today, what does general revelation tell us? That is, what does science, what does our observation of creation tell us in answer to this question? What does it contribute? And then what does scripture tell us as we consider the question of when human life begins? So first, let's address general revelation. What we know today with advanced medical technology is that at the moment of conception, when a sperm fertilizes an egg, the chromosomes align and a new DNA is formed. And from that moment on, the woman who's been impregnated has a distinct being in her body. It is not part of her. It does not share her DNA, but it has its own distinct DNA, which are the instructions for its growth, maturity, development. And it will undergo significant growth, significant physical change, rapid growth, rapid change in the coming days, weeks, months inside her womb. But what it is biologically, according to its DNA, will never change. A baby from the moment of conception until it dies as an adult will never change in its DNA. It is a distinct biological entity, not a part of the mother. That is something that we can state with scientific certainty. Now, having said that, we don't have any reason, therefore, to assume that something new emerges at any point after conception. It is at the moment of conception that this new entity exists. Can we pinpoint a moment after that when we could say it has now become a human life? Does the detectable heartbeat make it human? I don't think we can say that it does. What would justify saying that you must have a detectable heartbeat to be human? Does the ability to feel pain make it human? We know that babies in the womb can feel pain at some point in development, but does that in itself settle the question of when it becomes a human? Or does the journey through the birth canal somehow make it human, change what it was before into now a living human being worthy of protection? I would argue the only moment we can actually look to scientifically to determine when does a new human life begin is that moment of conception. There's no moment that comes later that would indicate a transition from not human to human. The only moment we can point to is conception itself. Now, what does Scripture tell us? Scripture doesn't speak the language of modern science, but what does it tell us that would inform us on this question? There are three passages I want to look at to help us understand the biblical outlook. In Exodus 21, verses 22 to 25, we read this law that is given to Israel. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. So men are striving together, they hit a pregnant woman, and her children come out, or, or, or the child inside her comes out, and it says if there is no harm, then the one who caused this premature birth must pay a fine. 
But verse 23 tells us, but if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. The harm in verse 23 most naturally refers to harm to the child. If the unborn child is prematurely caused to be born and that results in harm to the child, then this law specifies that the one who caused that harm must be punished in a proportional way. That's what eye for eye, tooth for tooth means. There is, in other words, to be retribution for harm done to a child in the womb. That seems to be the the most natural reading of Exodus 21, verses 22 to 25, bearing witness to us from what we know from the, the scientific evidence that the child in the womb is indeed a human being worthy of protection. Another passage that makes reference to life in the womb is Psalm 139, where David's speaking of the reality of God's inescapability and God's care for him, tells us in Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. And so in a poetic way, David speaks of the beautiful work of God in the womb of forming a child, forming David himself, which would also apply to all other children God forms in the womb, celebrating the work of God as something to be marveled at, something to be in awe of, something to respect, not something to feel the freedom for us to end when we so choose, but rather let us respect and marvel at the work of God in forming unborn life in the womb. Luke chapter 1 verse 41 also bears witness to this reality when it speaks of Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, when she's pregnant with him, hearing the voice of Mary and the baby, John, in her womb, leapt when he heard the voice of Mary. This would indicate that John, in the womb of his mother Elizabeth, is being pictured as a living human being even to some degree with agency or the ability to rejoice at hearing the voice of Mary, the mother of Jesus. If you think about the logic of the incarnation itself as the centerpiece of Christian theology, what does this tell us that might be relevant to the topic at hand? In the incarnation, you have the union of the divine son to a human nature in the womb of the Virgin Mary. There was never a moment when God the Son was either united to something other than a fully human nature. In other words, there was never a moment in the incarnation inside the womb of Mary where we could say God the Son was united to some other nature. It's always a human nature. And we would also say there was never a moment when he was not a fully human person by his union of divinity with humanity. And if that's the case, then it would mean that, of course, Jesus was a fully human person from the moment of conception as the paradigm of all humanity as well. The incarnation did not involve a sexual act, of course. It was a virgin conception, a virgin birth, but it did involve every moment of development subsequent to conception, which would tell us that the moment of conception is the moment that matters for the beginning of a human life. One more point I would make on this question, and that is the point about where the burden of proof falls. 
You may recall that back in 2008, in the presidential race between Barack Obama and John McCain, these two presidential candidates participated in an event that was hosted by Rick Warren. And Warren asked the question, when does a baby receive human rights? When when should an unborn child have rights of protection? In other words, it's another way of asking this question, when does human life begin? Barack Obama's answer to that question is that it was above my pay grade. That's not something, in other words, that Obama said he could answer. If that is the case, what should you conclude? If you say, I cannot determine with certainty when a human life begins, well, should we then err on the side of not killing it or err on the side of killing it? Imagine that you're driving in your car, you see something in the road, and you can either inconveniently slow down, change lanes, swerve to miss it, or you can hit it. And from what you can tell, it might either be a harmless cardboard box that will simply crumble under your tires and do no damage, or it might be a child. And you're not sure which one it is, but those are your two options. That's a cardboard box or that's a child. I can inconvenience myself to miss it or I can just keep going out of convenience and run right over it. The moral obligation for anyone in that situation is to do whatever you need to do to miss it. Because if that could possibly be a child, you do not want that child's blood on your hands. So when Barack Obama answered that question's above my pay grade and then proceeded to be the most pro-choice president in American history up to that time, he condemned himself. And he made clear that even though he professes not to be able to answer the question, when does human life begin, he definitely supports policies that make a clear judgment call on when human life begins. And for him, it appears to be after birth. Are we morally safe to say, well, we can't know for sure, therefore, let's have the freedom to kill whatever is in the womb, though it might be a child? That's moral insanity. If we have any uncertainty about this, the burden falls upon those who would say we have a right to kill whatever is in the womb. So my conclusion, not only from general revelation, from what science tells us, from what scripture tells us, and from the burden of proof question is this, the unborn are worthy of protection at all stages of development, and a just society will enshrine those protections into law. We have a lot of work still to do. Roe v. Wade is gone, praise God, but we still have a lot of work to do before we become a just society that respects the right to life of those precious human beings who are made in God's image and who are not yet born. Until next time, remember Jeremiah 6, 16. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. Mm -hmm.